Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Last weekend I went to my nephew's birthday party at what used to be known as Hampstead Town Hall. Now I was particularly happy to be there, um, not just because of the party, but because Hampstead Town Hall, a grade two listed building which opened in 1878 and yes I did copy this off the sign there the architects of that building were Henry Edward Kendall and Frederick Mew and that's why I was excited and I asked the lady on the desk if there was any information or a plaque about those architects and she said uh, don't know but they were the grandfather and father, respectively, of this week's poet, Charlotte Mew. Charlotte Mew was born in 1869 and died in 1928. And she, I think she's absolutely brilliant. She was uh, something of a character, I should say, before we get into the, the poem. She wore men's clothes most of the time, smoked a lot, always carried a black umbrella, short hair. Yeah, was probably gay and was just an interesting person. The story is that her and her sister Anne took a pledge when two of their siblings ended up in what used to be known as a a mental asylum that they would never have children because they didn't want to inflict suffering upon them so it's already it's a colorful tale but the important thing as ever is the poetry and so I want to get straight into that and if you're going to do Charlotte Mew it's very hard to avoid the farmer's bride which is her signature piece and which was first published in 1912 I just want to get straight into it I can't wait any longer The Farmer's Bride. It is irregular in its lines and stanzas. It's whatever Charlotte feels like at that particular point in the poem. But it's got a beautiful old English ballad feel to it as well. Let's jump in. I'll give you the first four lines of the first stanza. Three summers since I chose a maid, too young maybe, but more's to do at harvest time than bide and woo. When us was wed, she turned afraid. Okay, one of Charlotte's, I I think of her as Charlotte, so that's what I'm going to call her. One of her techniques is to make the speaker of the poem male. In this case, the farmer of the uh, of the title and that very first line three summers since i chose a maid that sounds like rustic talk doesn't it most of us would say three years probably but three summers a man who thinks in the seasons and their significance to him three summers since i chose a maid and then straight away we've got doubt Too young, maybe. But more's to do at harvest time than bide and woo. So already he's got, maybe it was a mistake, 
bit too young. And but more's to do at harvest time than bide and woo. You know, I was busy. Harvest time, it's our busiest time of the year. I can't bide and woo. I can't hang around and romanticize. I found someone, I married them. You know, let's get on with it. When Os was wed, she turned afraid. And there we're getting now that this is a rustic man. When Os was wed, using the phrase of, of an uneducated man, I think it's fair to say. And as the poem develops, this man, he, he can't understand what's happened to this marriage. And... That, again, is a clever technique because we read between the lines and he tells us things that he can't grasp the significance of, but we feel that maybe we can, maybe we can feel something going on that he can't. Let's get on. Okay. When us was wed, she turned afraid of love and me and all things human. Like the shot of a winter's day, her smile went out and twasn't a woman. So when us was wed, as I say, that's very when us was wed, very rustic. She turned afraid of love and me and all things human. That line really creeps up on us in its intensity of love. You think, well, you know, a young bride and me. Okay, there could be a problem here. And all things human. Oh, my God, that's quite big. And it creeps up on us that. And what does it mean exactly? All things human. We're assuming she was human. Like the shot of a winter's day. So like when it goes dark on a winter's day early on and this has happened very early on in their relationship her smile went out and twasn't a woman and then it, that first stanza ends with this rhyming couplet more like a little frightened fay one night in the fall she runned away okay so she turned afraid when they got married of love and me and all things human, like the shot of a winter's day. Her smile went out and twasn't a woman. So this enormous change almost immediately, twasn't a woman. Now, we've been told, of course, that um, he thinks maybe she was too young and so that's why maybe she isn't a woman, but it feels more than that when it follows that line that she turned afraid, dot, 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 of all things human. What has he married here? More like a little frightened fay, a fay being a fairy. So we're getting a sense of the supernatural creeping into this. On one level, this just feels like a marriage which was not thought through, which was rushed, she was too young, he was too busy with his work and it's just gone a bit wrong. But this thing that she was 
afraid of all things human, that she wasn't a woman. She was more like a little frightened fae, like a fairy. It's ominous. One night in the fall, she runned away. And again, um, after when Os was wed, now she runned away. So we're getting the farmer's rustic tongue. One night in the fall. I must admit, I always thought the fall was very much a North American thing. But apparently from about 1600 in the UK, people called autumn the fall. And then it sort of uh, went out of fashion. But in these rustic parts, it's still like that. And if we can just look quickly, I know you get edgy when I do this, but just look quickly at the form of this first one. We've got four lines. Three summers since I chose a maid, two young maybe, but more's to do. A harvest time than bide and woo. When us was wed, she turned afraid. So the rhyme is A, B, B, A. So it's maid. And then it's do and woo and then afraid. So that's that's the first four lines. And then it goes, the light, the rhymes are human, day, woman, fay, away. So those five lines, if we accept that A and B are already taken in this stanza, it would be C, D, C, D, D. Human, day, woman, fay, away. Okay, so that's... You think, oh, that's it then, that's the form of this poem. But in the next stanza, we kick off with two rhyming couplets. Like I say, Charlotte, she just, it's the feel she's after. It's the atmosphere she's creating. And she refuses to be tied to the form. But it's there. It still emerges now and again. And you you think, oh, the rhyme, you can feel all that. But just as you settle into it, she moves you about a bit. Okay, next stanza. Out among the sheep or bee, they said, should properly have been a bed. But sure enough, she wasn't there, lying awake with her wide brown stare. And, uh, hmm. So this is obviously one of the locals talking. Out among the sheep or bee, they said. So they've seen her among the sheep. And one thing about this, um, woman stroke girl is she's always associated with nature more than people throughout this poem so she's with the sheep at this point should properly have been a bed a bed means um in bed my mom used to say shut up your dad's a bed which if you weren't used to that grammatical structure did make him sound like furniture but it meant that he was in bed so should properly have been a bed, but sure enough, she wasn't there, lying awake with a wide brown stare. So, lying awake with a wide brown stare. So, when she was in bed, this seems to have been what she was like, not sleeping. And I love that phrase, her wide brown stare. It's like her eyes are so big. You don't even think of them as wide brown eyes. The whole stare seems to be informed by this colour. This is stare, obviously, A-R-E. There will be another stare later in the poem, so look out for that. It'll be A-I-R. Okay, so she's not in bed. She's not a bed. So that's our um, 
rhyming couplets out the way. And then um, we have a little bit of uh, A, B, A, B. So over seven acre field and up along across the down, we chased her flying like a hare before our lanterns to church town. Now, there is a 16 syllable line in that. No one saw that coming, but it gives us the sense of the chase of going up and along and across the down. It gives us that feel. Let's hear it again. Out among the sheep her be, they said she'd probably have been a bed, but sure enough, she wasn't there lying awake with her wide brown stare. So over seven acre field and up along across the down, we chased her, flying like a hare. You see, again, she is compared with a natural phenomenon. Flying like a hare before our lanterns to church town so they pursue her with these lanterns light but she seems more at home in the darkness but she goes to church town that doesn't sound like her best bet this doesn't sound like someone who's coming from the world of formal christianity it sounds like someone who's coming from some sort of magical nature we'll see before our lanterns to church town, all in a shiver and a scare we caught her, fetched her home at last, and turned the key upon her fast. Now what I'm not liking about this is the fact of the we in this. We caught her, fetched her home at last, and turned the key upon her fast. The men of the village now seem to be a group which is against this young woman and also when all in a shiver and a scare we caught her we're not quite sure from that turn of phrase whether it's her that's all in a shiver and a scare we assume that but it could also be these men all in a shiver and a scare when we caught her maybe they're slightly afraid of this strange girl challenging quite a lot of the norms of this rustic society the little wife who does what she's told not quite happening with this this woman next stanza and remember we've just had her there we caught her fetched her home at last and turned the key upon her fast this is someone who runs flying like a hare and now she's locked up. Turn the key upon her fast. You almost can hear that of the lock. And so after all that energy, after that 16-syllable line that was so exciting, so over seven-acre field and up along across the down, now she is behind lock and key. She does the work about the house as well as most but like a mouse, happy enough to chat and play with birds and rabbits and such as they, so long as men folk keep away. Okay, so now we're going into a longer stanza and the rhyme scheme changes again. Again, we begin with rhyming couplets, but then we go somewhere else. I love it. Who needs too much formality? She does the work about the house as well as most, but like a mouse. Again, it, it's still a simile which is 
nature-based, but also it makes the sound not only quiet but hidden, happy enough to chat and play with birds and rabbits and such as they, so long as men folk keep away. So we've got a rhyming triplet there, but happy enough to chat and play. So there is still happiness and life in this girl, as long as she's around nature. So she'll chat and play with birds and rabbits and such as they, so long as men folk keep away. It's, oh God, it, it's like, it feels like it, there's going to be a witch trial or something. This young, free-spirited girl and these men folk of the village. And listen to this. Not near, not near her eyes beseech when one of us comes within reach. The women say that beasts in stall look round like children at her call. I've hardly heard her speak at all. So she's fine as long as the men are at a distance. Not near, not near, her eyes beseech. And I think that not near, it doesn't even, it's not just physical nearness, isn't it? It's about intimacy. I don't want anything to do, even with my husband. Not near, not near, her eyes beseech. She's not even saying it, it's just the look of her. When one of us comes within reach. I don't like also that feel. What does he mean, one of us? The other men are getting close as well. It's hard not to wonder, and I think Charlotte is possibly hinting at this, to wonder if this girl has had a traumatic experience involving a man that isn't directly referred to in the poem. The women say that beasts in stall look round like children at her call. So the beasts in the barns that are in their stalls, be they horses or cows or whatever, look round like children at her call. So they respond to her. Again, it's that oneness with nature. I think we wonder at times in this poem, if the young woman is possibly mentally ill. But when we hear that animals respond to her like this, it seems that her difference is more mystical than that. And what about the farmer? I think we've thought of this farmer as too busy to bother with um, things like wooing. We've thought of him as part of this posse tracking her down like an animal. We thought of him turning the key on her and depriving her of her freedom and of the sort of spirit that seems to animate her. But that last line, I've hardly heard her speak at all. So the women have told him about this, but she doesn't talk to him. Remember, she lies awake in bed with her wide brown stare. She has shot him out. And I think at that point, I feel a bit sorry for the farmer. He's got into this mess and he doesn't know why. He doesn't know what's happening. I'll finish off. This ends with uh, four more lines. This is a, I'll just to tell you again, the first uh, stanza was nine lines. The second was 10. This one is 14. Charlotte's rules. Okay. Shy, and, and you can listen out for the uh, 
nature similes in these last four lines. Shy as a leveret, swift as he, straight and slight as a young larch tree, sweet as the first wild violet she, to her wild self. But what to me? Right. Shy as a leveret, swift as he. So a leveret is a is a a young hare. We've already heard in the uh, during the chase that she was as she was flying like a hare. So it's that again. But leveret reminds us of her youth, right near the beginning of the poem. The farmer put forward her youth as as a possible reason for the the problem. Shy as a leveret, swift as he. Shy because he shuns society. Straight and slight as a young larch tree. And again, it's a young larch tree. So not only nature, but youth. Sweet as the first wild violet, she to her wild self. But what to me? So, again, the first wild violet, so early, young. Sweet as the first wild violet, she to her wild self, but what to me? Now, I have to, I think I do have to comment on the use of violets here. Violets were a a flower that featured in the writings of the ancient Greek poetess, if you can still say poetess, Sappho, who has become something of, I think it's fair to say, a a lesbian icon. There's a bit where um, what seems to be her lover arrives in in one of the fragments of um, Sappho's poetry that we've got left, and she's robed in many crowns of violets. And um, I don't know whether she keeps them on while she, um, well, I quote, on a soft, gentle bed, you quenched your desire. No holy sight we left uncovered, no grove. Now, they could have just been draping a religious area with garlands of violets. I don't know, but it sounds quite sensual. And certainly violets just around this time in the early 20th century, they had Someone actually described them as the lesbian flower. Obviously, I'm slightly out of my depth here. I'm sorry um, if anyone thinks, mind your own business. But I think it, it's it's relevant. And it's kind of fits, as far as we can tell, with Charlotte. You know, I'd, I'd, as you know, I'm wary of uh, biography, but it seems important to me to make this point, and so I'm making it. So sweet as the first wild violet she to her wild self, but what to me? It could be another explanation of why the marriage hasn't worked out, is what I'm um, hinting at. But if that is in the poetry, Charlotte's only hinting at it as well. So let's not dwell. Let's go to the penultimate, this time, eight-line stanza. And now time has moved on, I think it's fair to say. And what we get in this stanza is something I've mentioned before, um, I think a couple of times on these podcasts, pathetic fallacy. 
the idea that someone is so sad and upset I suppose they could be super happy but whatever happens the the environment they describe reflects their inner mood they are subjective in the extreme the short days shorten and the oaks are brown the blue smoke rises to the low grey sky one leaf in the still air falls slowly down a magpie's spotted feathers lie on the black earth spread white with rhyme okay the short days shorten i love that i love it because the days are already dark they're really short but they're getting even shorter and that's how this relationship seems to be going that's how the farmer's mood black and getting blacker and the oaks are brown i knew there was some significance in this when i read it so i looked it up and there is a fungus which is actually called beefsteak fungus i've seen photographs of it and it it looks like raw meat and it attacks oaks makes them go brown and kills them off so it's a if you're a rustic, this is another image of uh, death, decay, and something that was going to be magnificent now crumbling. The blue smoke rises to the low grey sky. Oh man, it's so. These are tough times for the farmer. One leaf in the still air falls slowly down. You can see it, can't you? A magpie's spotted feathers lie on the black earth spread white with rhyme. Now, I love magpies. I still salute them and say good morning or good afternoon, Mr. Magpie, in order that bad luck will not fall upon me. And I am delighted when I see two together, as in two for joy i think they are beautiful they are written off as black and white but they have the most amazing blue in them as well i am a magpie fan i've never seen a spot on one yet so a magpie spotted feathers lie i wonder if it just means that they are black and white if it's been used like pied in that way because they lie on the black earth spread white with rhyme and you'll remember from the thomas hardy podcast that we talked then about rhyme uh, and he uses it as a slight pun on rhyme uh, as in poetry but rhyme certainly as frost and i think charlotte's point here is that it is a sort of monochrome world on so a magpie's spotted feathers lie on the black earth spread white with rhyme black and white magpie feathers black earth white frost on it it the color seems to have been drained out and then we just given a little bit of hope the berries redden up to christmas time and you're thinking oh that uh, an escape the very next line what's christmas time without there be some other in the house than we 
So this marriage has produced no children for obvious reasons. So yes, amidst the monochrome world, there is some red in these berries. Christmas is coming, but what's the point if you don't have kids? What is, uh, what is Christmas for? That is it's an old-fashioned view, but it's, uh, it's the farmer's view. And so to the last, the very last stanza, and this time just five lines. And this, I think, is a brilliant stanza. It's got so much going on. I think I'll read you the whole thing through five lines. You can cope, and then we'll look at it. She sleeps up in the attic there, alone, poor maid. Tis but a stare betwixt us. Oh, my God, the down, the soft young down of her, the brown, the brown of her, her eyes, her hair, her hair. And then it ends. Oh, my goodness. So, well, it seems almost churlish to say it's an A-A-B-B-A rhyme scheme, but that's what it is. But it's in three parts as far as I'm concerned. And it's an accumulation. She sleeps up in the attic there alone, poor maid. And the fact that she's a poor maid suggests that she's still virginal, that they have never consummated their, their marriage. "'Tis but a stare betwixt us." And this, for me, is where it seems to turn. He calls her a poor maid, and that sounds like a moment of sympathy for this poor girl who he has married. But then, "'Tis but a stare betwixt us." It occurs to the farmer, he's just got to walk up one stair, and he's with this young woman. Oh, my God. It's almost like he's caught, he's he's realised now the danger of this thought. Oh, my God, the down, the soft young down of her, the brown, the brown of her, her eyes, her hair, her hair. This longing now starts to overtake him. The poem ends there and it leaves us feeling anxious because I don't want to know what would have been in the next stanza because it sounds like he might walk the stair he's really at the end of his tether and that he might go to her room and we are fearful for what might happen there I think we never really get to the bottom of what was wrong in this poem This young woman, I mean, was it mental illness? Had she had a traumatic experience? Was she gay? Was she some sort of nature sprite? Or is that just because I've read Robert Holdstock's disturbing fantasy novel, Mythargo Wood? The poem ends, as as, um, Charlotte herself might say, like the shot of a winter's day. It's enveloped in darkness, There's a lot we don't know. But wow, what a poem it is. And I return you to the the title, The Farmer's Bride. The obvious title would have been The Farmer's Wife. So why The Farmer's Bride? I think 
because she was his bride. There's no doubt about that. They married. We know that. But I don't think that she was ever quite his wife. And she was his bride, so he earns that apostrophe of ownership on the farmer's bride. But that seems to be, after that marriage, the belonging stopped. She was no longer his. And any closeness, any link between them seems to have disappeared almost immediately. It's a, a stunning poem. I think one of the reasons I love it is it reminds me of um, the poetry of Hardy, as does a lot of Charlotte Mew's work. Thomas Hardy said that Charlotte Mew was the best woman poet alive. And when she had times, he led a group of other writers who canvassed to get her a civil pension. Let me see how long this has been. Uh... Maybe too long. I'd love to do another Charlotte Mew. I'm gonna I'm gonna do one quickly. If you want to turn off now, it's fine. You've got you've got your Mew quota, but I'm just gonna do a short one, just because I'd like to do one with a with a uh, a female voice this time. And also, what's being bemoaned, what's being lost, is not what we expect. This is called Sea Love, and I'm just—I'm not going to give it the usual uh, detailed stuff. I'm just going to go through it because it's fab, and it's again—it's in a sort of rustic voice. I think Charlotte liked the idea that if you put big ideas in the voice of someone who seems simple, and I don't mean simple in that—I mean uncomplicated that you get a sort of a stark truth which we can then meditate upon. Okay. Tide be running the great world over. T'was only last June month, I mind that we was thinking the toss and the call in the breast of the lover so everlasting as the sea. Okay, it's called sea love. I don't know if I told you that. See, as in, you know, that thing you swim in. Tide be running the great world over, so the sense of universality of the tide. T'was only last June month. Again, that's a bit like the old three summers ago. It, it, it sets her in a rustic world, I think. No, none of us would say last June month. T'was only last June month, I mind, I remember, that we was thinking the toss and the call in the breast of the lover, so everlasting as the sea. And that, that third line was thinking the toss and the call in the breast of the lover. Again, she's gone off on her own rhythm now, and it feels like the sea, the toss and the call in the breast of the lover, so everlasting as the sea. So... It sounds like she was talking with her lover about the toss and the call in the breast of the lover. I think it's saying it's like tossing a coin. You know, you toss and then you call while it's in the air. The excitement of that, of not knowing what's going to come next, the thrill of it all. And you're thrown around as well, the toss and the call. You're thrown around, i.e. the toss, and also the yearning that the lover feels is like the call, the call of the wild. You're being dragged in. And in 
bringing in the sea. It sounds like the sirens, you know, these mystical um, female creatures who um, call the sailors to their destruction. It all seems to be swirling around. In It was only last June month, I mind that we was thinking the toss and the call in the breast of the lover, so everlasting as the sea. We thought that that feeling, that wild, slightly frightening, slightly unbalanced excitement of being in love was as everlasting as the sea. It would go on forever. Okay, second and final stanza. Here's the same little fishes that sputter and swim with the moon's old glim on the grey wet sand and him no more to me nor me to him than the wind going over my hand. So... Here's the same little fishes that sputter and swim. So um, it's us again, seen because of all the thing of this tide running the great world over and the everlasting sea. Her and her lover feel like two little fishes that sputter and swim. There's moments when they swim and it's beautiful and moments when they can't breathe. Here's the same little fishes that sputter and swim with the moon's old gleam on the grey wet sand. I love that. So the tidal moon seems to be toying with them that gives them depth of water to swim in or no water, which makes them sputter. But listen to that. With the moon's old glim, short for glimmer, but beautiful. The moon's old gleam on the grey wet sand. And it's those three monosyllables. Moon's old gleam, grey wet sand. that gives that line a real power. With a moon's old gleam on the grey wet sand. And then you think, oh, he's left her. Love has gone. She's heartbroken. But it seems deeper and darker than that if you like and him no more to me nor me to him than the wind going over my hand so the loss here doesn't seem to be the loss of her lover it seems to be the loss of love generally love itself for all its toss and call seems to have been replaced now by sort of indifference ineffectiveness and she's bemoaning that. And what about that for a comparison? And him no more to me nor me to him than the wind going over my hand. <sighs> so before she felt these big cosmic powers that was throwing them around. Tide be running the great world over. So everlasting as the sea. But now... The moon's old glim on the grey wet sand has left them with nothing. The passion seems to have gone away. Now, there's part of it because I've read so much love poetry that makes me think, is this true? Does he really mean nothing to her now? Or is she putting a brave face on it? But I, I don't know. You decide what you make of and him no more to me nor me to him than the wind going over my hand 
this great mighty thing now the sea the tide doesn't make any difference it just the wind itself just goes over my hand it doesn't affect it doesn't change it doesn't move it all that passion and all that sense of cosmic meaning has gone has gone and we never got to know anything about the lover or about the relationship it's just that and it's a very simple eight-line poem, Sea Love. But I keep reading it over and over because Charlotte Mew has a way of, like all great poets, of making small lines do big things. I'm, uh, I'm turning the page because I just want to make sure I get the date right. Charlotte lived with a sister, um, that sister who she did the pledge not to have children with, Anne. And Anne died in 1927 and Charlotte went into a massive depression and drank disinfectant. And I try not to encourage the tragic poet cliche in these podcasts, but they are the facts. And um, Charlotte died. In my opinion... Charlotte Mew should be a household name. I mean, read more. of There isn't loads, but read more of her poems. They are, God, they really take you to a place and they really get into the marrow of your bones. And you read them, you read an hour of Charlotte and two days later you can feel it like, like a sort of fabulous poetic flu in you. So, yeah, she should be a household name. And, yes, you, you can make that happen. Read Charlotte Mew. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week. 